This evening, Ron Perrone is going to be preaching at Commerce Community Church, our church plant in Commerce, and uh, he's going to be preaching on this passage from Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And um, God is so perfect in His timing that He is preparing them and preparing... uh, I'm sharing it this morning because uh, I think this message this morning and maybe just considering this passage may prepare us for uh, tonight. We need to meet together tonight as members, just members tonight at 6. So I was going to say that to the end, but didn't want... uh, It just seemed appropriate right now. If you're not a member, it doesn't mean that we don't like you. It's just that sometimes family sits at the table together, and we've got to talk about a family matter tonight. So that's at 6. But I want to pray about that. I want to pray for Commerce Community Church. I want to pray for Ron Perrone and um, for his message that he is preparing and finishing and going to pre- preach tonight. And I want to also thank God that we can be comforted, and we are comforted. It's not a maybe. It's a promise. So let's pray. Lord, we want to pray for this, uh, this people, Commerce Community Church, that you have um, wrought from this little body. And uh, we thank you so much for the sweet, awesome privilege of walking with this people and um, shepherding alongside them and sharing burdens for commerce and for Greenville and our surrounding areas. Lord, I pray for both this people and uh, for Commerce Community Church that you'll prepare our hearts for the truth and and just uh, give us strength and courage and comfort in heartbreak. Lord, we ultimately want to be beautiful when Christ comes back. We want to be pleasing. We want to have done the right thing and uh, preach the right messages and eaten the right truth and obeyed rightly, loved rightly. And uh, even if that means our undoing, even if it means that um, it's uncomfortable. Lord, we turn these next few minutes over to you for your glory and I just pray that your truth will be revealed and pray that our understanding of what it means to follow Christ will be uh, developed into a more robust appreciation of the cost. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that's smiling all the time. It kind of makes me nervous. I'm like, man, what do you, what's wrong with you? You know, and I, I'm, I've never been a good faker about things like that. And uh, this morning is one of those mornings. It's just a been a tough week for the elders and um, just some heavy, heavy things. And I encourage you to um, pray for the elders regularly. It's, it's not, a, not an easy call. I mentioned last week that you better lust for it, and that was the appropriate word, and you better, because it, it, it's, not, it's not easy. But I was thinking about the timing. You know, it's one of those kind of things where I, I told Scott after the first service, I wish I could just have a mulligan on a Sunday. And just kind of a, or maybe a postpone. Let's let's just you know sing a little bit. And but there's times where you just got, you have to continue to eat, and you got to stand and deliver, and you got to dine together. And even just because it's hard doesn't mean that you don't do it. And just because you don't feel like you have a 
genuine smile to flash at everybody, and visitors are, okay, these guys aren't smiling. What's wrong with you guys? Um, I know that can be unnerving to maybe bump into something that may be a little bit more raw. But it probably, you see it now, than, sooner than later, because you'll see it eventually, hope, hopefully. I think the church should be the place where we're most authentic instead of the least. And the people of God, as we gather, we should be able to be ourselves. And um, it seems like the cool thing in that setting is that Christ going to be glorified as people are changed and grown and, and delivered and all those things that if we're always happy with our Sunday morning smiles and always happy with our, our um, cheesy Donny Osmond Christianity, I don't know where he came from. He's just smiling all the time. That's the guy, only guy that come to mind. He's a Mormon, so that is, there's no such thing as Donny Osmond Christianity. But that, that, sort of, <laughs> that sort of attitude just doesn't, you know, it doesn't reconcile. And it, it's interestingly enough that that's the prop, appropriate soil for this message this morning. The soil that I feel like I'm standing in that has a lot of manure in it, frankly, is appropriate soil for us to be standing in this morning as we dine on this message. You can turn to John 12. And I'll read from there in a moment. <clears throat> I grew up in central Louisiana, and I can tell you, at least to my knowledge growing up, there aren't many Jews in central Louisiana. I had one Jewish friend in my whole school. His name was Mark Kaplan. And uh, I was looking for a Jewish surname. I wanted to find a real common Jewish surname that we were going to borrow this morning. And Kaplan... I found it on one of those, those name websites, you know, so I know it's a Jewish name. He was a Jew, so, and is. I think he's still around. But we're going to borrow his name this morning. And we're going to borrow his name because we're going to spend some time with the family, the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus family, and it's just cumbersome to say all three of their names together, so we're going to borrow a surname, the Kaplan family. Mary, Kaplan, Martha, Kaplan, and Lazarus, Kaplan. I've been thinking over these last couple of months as we've been dining on the first eight verses or so of chapter 12, and really chapter 11, what a cool impact Christ has had on the Kaplan family. I mean, when you really think about it, you know, just thinking about how his relationship with them, his friendship with them just radically impacted their family. I was thinking about, first first of all, Martha. Man, we, some other glimpses of Martha in some other gospels that tell us, show us earlier in the gospel, earlier in Christ's ministry, that she was busy and troubled about many things. She was the busybody sort that was, why aren't you doing what I'm doing? Why aren't you burdened with what I'm burdened with? And just probably impossible to be around. And the cool thing is that when Christ invaded this family and when Christ got to know this family and they got to know Christ is, at least in Martha's case, first of all, she had the opportunity to sit down with the ultimate counselor. Some of you, many of us have sat and talked with someone for counsel at some point. Imagine sitting and seeking counsel from the one that knows how many hairs you have on your head. Imagine getting counsel from somebody that knows your every fear, your every worry, your every frustration, and you're getting counsel from the ultimate, capital C, counselor. And Martha got it, and it seems like she listened. At least in John 12, there's a stark absence of reprimand as she did the same thing, serving. So maybe she got it. We can hope and pray that Christ made a cool impact on Martha. 
We have to kind of read into that, but we can know for sure with Mary. When you look at Mary and you look at the other glimpses of Mary in the other Gospels, every time you see Mary, she is at the feet of Christ. She's hungry to be taught by Christ. When her brother dies, she weeps at the feet of Christ. And then in John chapter 12, she worships at the feet of Christ. Christ's ministry to her was an obvious blessing, as evidenced by her response of worship with a year's wage worth of, I don't know, 16 ounces of nard. Seems like things are going well for the Kaplan family when you really think about it so far. Martha's got her act together. Mary's really enjoying her Lord. And then, as if things aren't, as if things could not get any better, think about the impact on Lazarus. Just imagine being dead four days. That's hard to imagine, but imagine it. Imagine that you're dead and decaying, living in a cold, damp, dark tomb. And imagine that you hear the words, come forth. And you step out into this daylight where your eyes just can't even see, but when they come into focus and when you can finally see, you see your Jesus standing right there. That same Jesus that has been a friend of your family. And you've got these grave cloths you're trying to rip off of you and other people are helping them off. And, and, and then you're walking home next to the one that called you from death to life with your grave cloths in tow. I'll say that Christ has had an unbelievable impact on the Kaplan family. Seems like life is just from now on for the Kaplans just going to be gravy. I mean, we've got our Jesus on. Things are going to be cool from here on out. Walking on the sunny side of the street. It seems like the Kaplan family is well on their way to their best life now. Let's go to John chapter 12 and consider if that's true. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Just see Lazarus enjoying Christ with his best life now. He's got it going on. And here's Mary. She's enjoying it too. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just imagine the moment. She's been saving up money for so long, not knowing what for. And then she's purchased this nard and she's anointing the feet of Jesus. But then in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas Iscariot spoke. How dare you, Judas? Speak in this moment. I've been saving up this money for so long and I've spent a year's wage on this nard and I've got this together and I'm involved in what is, is going to prove to be the most beautiful expression of worship probably in history. And Judas opens his mouth. Not only does he open his mouth, but he opens his, his mouth with derision and criticism. I want you to imagine just for a moment what it would be like if you were to 
finally find a place of true, no lines drawn worship. If you were to do something like this, and you had prepared for the moment, and you're in the moment, and someone speaks and ruins it. And not only do they speak and ruin it, but imagine just for a moment, maybe you can, maybe you can identify with this. Maybe you found a place in your life at some point, at one expression, one thing that you did for another person, or one thing that you did for the Lord, that you felt like, I actually did this, I think, in complete purity. <laughs> in some weird way, I think I've discovered true selflessness, at least in this moment. And I'm going to express this act of worship in complete purity, and complete selflessness. And then somebody goes and messes that up. And not only that, not only do they mess it up, but they accuse you of being selfish. And they accuse you of having the wrong motives and not even caring about the poor. So not only did he speak, but he ruined the moment. That's what Mary faced this day. You may not think that's a big deal for someone to speak in that context, but it was a big deal for this worship for her as evidenced by a year's wage spent on a little vial of nard spent in about 15 minutes. How wonderful this would have been with the absence of criticism. But maybe this is just an anomaly for the Kaplans. Maybe this was just some weird, strange occurrence, you know, and the Kaplans are really on their way to the best life now. And Judas was just, you know, he, he's, after all, the one that betrayed Christ. So maybe this was just a strange happening that won't happen again or couldn't happen to the people of God, certainly. Let's look at verse 9 of chapter 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Lazarus really has it going on. He's living now. He's dining with Christ, and now he's even popular. People coming to check him out, watching him live and eat and walk and breathe. But then in verse 10, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It seems like Lazarus would have had everything going for him at this point. But it turns out that someone is conspiring to kill him. The chief priests were the Sadducees. The reason the Sadducees were chapped at Lazarus is because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh-oh, Lazarus. You've kind of taken my system of no, no resurrection, and you're taking that system and you're turning it on its ear. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to kill you again. That's their plan and their remedy. Imagine what that would be like for Lazarus. Just imagine, you've been called from death to life. I bet many of you can identify with the time that you've been really sick for a few days, and then you get well, and you're like, man, the sky is blue and the grass is green. Boy, life is good. Imagine being dead for four days, and then walking around. You imagine Lazarus is on cloud nine. Boy, he's got Jesus in his life. He's breathing, walking, dining with him, and then somebody wants to kill him? Some of y'all can probably identify with a near-death experience and what it feels like on the other side of a near-death experience and how alive you felt. 
I wonder if that's how alive Lazarus felt as the Sadducees are conspiring to kill him. Why in the world would anybody want to kill a walking miracle? So much for your best life now, Kaplan's. Things aren't looking so great. I'm troubled with the Christian message that seems to be developing in the direction of a safer and better and tidier and more uncontrolled or more in control life if you follow Christ. I'm troubled with that message because it doesn't seem to reconcile, at least with the Kaplan's. Things aren't going so great for them. They seem to be at first, but then people want to kill them. And then people want to make fun of them in moments that should be cherished. The message through our TV screen, which is, it shapes us so much, if you turn to any of the Christian channels, they have nice smiles, nice hair, nice suits, big auditoriums, big sanctuaries. And that's the impression that we get about what Christianity is. If you follow Christ, then that's what's in store. Big smiles, nice hair, expensive suits, and grand worship centers. And the message that often goes along with that is that if you'll follow Christ, He will bless your life with with a cool job, with a nice home, and with perfect health. And if you don't get those things, you must not have enough faith. It's the kind of message that we're hearing, and books don't present a better picture. Books, Many books present this God as a heavenly bellboy that is just hustling around to make life better for us. But it doesn't seem to reconcile at least with the Kaplan's picture. As I hear that sort of message and as I see that nice hair and those nice smiles and those expensive suits, I wonder to myself, where's the resistance? Why do I feel resistance in this community? Why do I feel resistance in my own life? Why do I feel resistance in the mirror? Do they not experience this? And is my Bible wrong if it's presenting resistance? Did something happen to the Kaplan family? Did they go astray and do something wrong? Well, now people want to kill them and make fun of them? I look at the best life now message, and I wonder where is the resistance? The message comes across that if you simply acquire the nice smile and the nice suit and the big sanctuary that you'll reap huge results and that even the world will believe because they'll be impressed. Man, that's a nice suit. You've obviously found something right. The church planting and church growth schemes are really no different because they tell you if you're facing resistance, then you need to change your model and you need to change your approach. And maybe you need to soften the message a little bit because we wouldn't want anybody to be alarmed. We wouldn't want anybody to be undone. We wouldn't certainly want anybody to be ashamed. Essentially, resistance and rejection with that message is equated with doing something wrong. But when I look at the Kaplan's, I don't see anything wrong. And I see resistance, conspiracy, and derision. Turn to Psalm chapter 23, verse 5. 
Many of you probably wouldn't even need to turn there. 23rd Psalm is a very popular psalm. It's one that I've preached before at funerals. I'm going to read in the beginning just for the sake of context. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It sounds like your best life now so far. It sounds like flowery beds of ease. It sounds like, man, things are going to be sweet with Jesus. Then he goes on, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But then in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I read that verse for the first time in light of John chapter 12, and I'm seeing that, yeah, that's appropriate that there's enemies there at the table. He's told us to expect it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even at the wonderful table of John chapter 12, at a wonderful time, in the most wonderful expression of worship, probably in history, at the feet of the most wonderful Lord, that there will still be enemies, both inside and out. Inside chiding and deriding, and outside conspiring. A.W. Pink writes these words. He says, a true valuation of Christ always brings out the hatred of those who are of Satan. A true valuation of Christ always brings out the hatred of those who are of Satan. As I read that, I thought hate word, hate, hatred was a pretty strong word, and I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't preaching A.W. Pink, that I was preaching the Bible. So I went to 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn there with me. going to find out if A.W. is on to something. If true valuation of Christ necessarily means hatred, let's consider this in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Peter is writing to believers. So just imagine that Peter is preaching right now, just for a moment, because he's speaking to you, essentially. He says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, the time is past for the people of God to do what the Gentiles are continuing to do. The time is past for you to continue doing the things that you used to do. You don't do those things anymore because you're the people of God. You're a different people now. And what are those things? Those things, living in sensuality and passions, that's essentially living according to what makes you happy. Living according to what makes you feel good. Living according to your lusts and your passions drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He goes on to say, he says, with respect to these, they, that's being the Gentiles, that's the world, that's the people that we work with, that's our neighbors, that's our friends that are not walking with Christ, with respect to these things, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, these people are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they ignore you. No, it doesn't say that. And they avoid you. No, it doesn't say that. It says they malign you. It means they slander you. 
It means they go on the offensive. It means that you are not neutral and just invisible to them. It means that you are an affront to them. You are the affront to the world that Lazarus was as he walked around in front of the Sadducees. Hey, guys, what's up? What's up, chief priest? You don't believe in the resurrection, huh? Check me out. Whenever you say no, that's not a place of happiness, the sensuality and the lust and the debauchery. That's not where I find my joy. Don't be surprised when the world is surprised and when they malign you. Let's go on and look at verse 12. The same chapter. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So say that maligning takes place. Say that slander takes place. Say that you are trying to live a holy, pure life. Say that you're not participating in those things that you may have participated in the past. And your friends, your former friends, your former co-workers, your former or your current family even may laugh at you and mock you and make fun of you. May laugh about, oh, he's got his religion now. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. He says, don't be surprised. He says, instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What we ought to be, instead of surprised when we face slander and malignment and derision, is we ought to be surprised if we don't. And the reality is, many of us have no idea. We don't even know what this feels like because we may not be the salty, bright, aromatic Christian between Sundays. But I guarantee true valuation of Christ will result in hatred from the world. I can promise you that. If you feel like sometimes somebody's picking on you because of your out loud faith, i got two words for you. The first one is wham. The second one is sweet. Keep it up. Keep it up. Because Christ is going to be glorified in that. And Christ is going to be revealed in that. And you're suffering with Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So the word that I thought was a little bit strong in the beginning, when I hear, yeah, A.W. Pink say it, I'm like, A.W., man, you get a little bit strong there. It turns out that word is especially appropriate because it's actually a biblical word. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. That's what you'll face when you actually express true adoration for Christ. You will face hatred, not from every direction, but from most directions. If you're salty and bright and out loud with your faith, you will face hatred. The thing that so amazes me and the thing that doesn't seem to reconcile with your best life now is that Christ is a living example. His gospels and the way things unfolded for him is a living example of this. Peter was witness to this, and I can't help but wonder, as Peter wrote these words, as John wrote these words, if they weren't thinking about what they saw unfold with Christ's ministry. Look at this. Let me show you something. Turn to John chapter 6. We've moved so slowly through John 
that there's the potential for us to miss big sweeping movements. But I want to show you something. And I hope this is going to be liberating for you. I hope it's going to be encouraging for you to realize that if you bear Christ's message, what's in store for you? John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus is teaching and preaching. And he says these words. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I can tell you, it's been a couple years ago since I preached a message on that passage. And I know the, the, how we reeled and how people reeled from that truth. But there it is. Just in red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, we know Jesus said it. And then look over in, the, in verse 65. He goes on to say, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Huh? That's right. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father grants it to him. It's right there in red and black and white. And look at the next verse. It says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had this church that was building and growing. Man, they'd gone to two services. Man, I mean, they were having problems seeing everybody. And then he starts talking about nobody can come to me unless the Father drags them to me, unless the Father grants it that they come to me. And a bunch of his church is gone. But it's more than that. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. Not only did his followings, or did his following diminish, In chapter 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him. So again, it wasn't just a benign message that people just bailed on. It's actually something that people began to be aggressive about. I want to now arrest you. I'm not just going to walk away from this, but I want to arrest you. Chapter 8 has one of the coolest pictures of this. Look at chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus has just preached a message on him being the light of the world. It has been a successful evangelistic campaign. The revival is just, well, this would be viable. The revival is successful, man. We filled out more cards. People walked the aisle. We had more baptisms. It says in verse 30, and he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Man, we got decisions all over the place. Boy, Jesus, you did a good job. Now have a seat. Please. But Jesus didn't sit down and he kept on talking in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, to the ones in the verse before who had just filled out the belief card, the decision card, he says to the ones that just walked the aisle and filled out their card, he said, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these guys are sitting there holding their decision cards and they're going, What? We're not enslaved to anybody, Jesus. We're the offspring of Abraham. How dare you say we're enslaved? And then it goes on. In verse 48, these same Jews, these same Jews that believed, that filled out the cards, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That's like saying, that's like calling him a dirty dirty name. Samaritans were low. And they're calling this guy that they believed in just a few verses earlier a Samaritan. And they say, you have a demon. That sound like malignment? That sound pretty strong? That sound like a pretty aggressive response to his message? 
He's just preaching, right? And then in verse 52, they say, now we know that you have a demon. And then in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't walk away from his message. In fact, they wanted to stone him by the end of the message. Is that an anomaly? Chapter 10, verse 19. He's just preached again. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him. Folks, I don't know where your best life now comes from. If we're bearing the message of this Jesus, why should we expect any different? Why should we expect people to come stroke us on the back, say, man, you're a great citizen. We sure are glad the Christians are in our community. Sure are glad you're here. You guys have a nice, quieting, calming effect on our community. Best life now is eased into our community, and man, we sure are glad you guys are here. If we bear his message, if we worship him out loud, people won't be lukewarm about you. They were never lukewarm about Jesus. They either wanted to worship him or they wanted to stone him. If the people of God are salty and bright, people will not be lukewarm about us. They'll be chapped at you. They'll be surprised that you don't participate in what they participate in. And they will malign you. They'll either adore Christ in you, or they will want to stone the Christ in you. Now, if I were to end this message right here, There'd be the potential for us to walk out of here and just kind of steal each other, you know, hook arms and kind of face the world. And, man, we're going to take on the world together. Yeah, because the Bible tells us that we're going to face this derision and malignment, so we're going to be tough together. And we're just going to brave between Sundays. And then when Sunday morning comes, we'll be back together again. Everything will be cool. Between now and then, we're just going to kind of endure the world And do the best we can to make it between Sundays. And the reality is, this message, the things that we've encountered so far, this reality that we will face suffering because of our faith, you need to know, first of all, it's not an excuse for being difficult. It's not a good excuse for just being a horse behind your neighborhood. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. That's why my neighbors don't like me. It's because I love Jesus that my people that I work with think I'm a loser. People, some people that have a difficult time loving others and being gentle and caring and patient and bright and salty with others and they use their Jesus as an excuse for why they're unloved. So this must not be an excuse or a crutch for being unloving and difficult with neighbors, workmates, and friends. You also shouldn't use your Christianity to justify a condemning and judgmental spirit. I know how easy it is to step step out in our community and thumb your nose at the homosexual community or those who are given to sensuality or drunkenness and for us to feel a bit better about ourselves whenever we kind of get together and we rally and we talk about how bad they are. That's the same thing the tax collector said when he said, at least I'm not as sorry as that joker. 
makes us feel good about ourselves when we do that. That's not what I'm talking about right here. I'm not talking about an excuse and license to treat people that way. I think the hardest part about this message is not suffering with Christ. The hardest part about this message is suffering like Christ. That's the hard part. Many of us don't even know what it feels like to suffer in the first place or to be aligned because we've never been salty and bright for the first time. But just go there, see what it's like, and you'll find out it's hard. But then you're getting a little bitty tic-tac of a meal of suffering. And the meal of suffering is going to be to suffer like Christ. Christ was a sheep before shearers. Silent. As he was stoned, or as he was beaten, as he was spit upon, He wasn't stoned. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was nailed to a cross. And he kept saying over and over again, the verb in that gospel is an ongoing present tense verb that he was saying over and over again, Father, forgive them for they don't don't know what they're doing. He wasn't saying, up yours, world. You evil, wicked world. He was being salty and bright and aromatic. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is an encouragement from Peter to the people of God. They're scattered all over the Roman Empire. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's asking the question as if there's nobody that can really harm you. So what are you worried about? He's talking to people that are likely being burned at the stake or burned in the Colosseum to light the Colosseum for gladiator fighting. Say, who is there to really harm you? Come on. And then in verse 14 he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Mary, even if Judas opens his mouth in that sweet time of worship when it should have just been silent, Even if the high priest wants to kill you, Lazarus, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Listen to how you give a defense for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the call for God's people is not to avoid slander. It's not to avoid alignment. It's to be like Christ in the alignment and in the slander so that Christ is revealed and that we share His sufferings and that eventually, so that, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Maybe those who malign you and those who slander you may be like those who were standing at the foot of the cross that day saying, surely this was the Son of God. The very same that had spit on Him and beaten Him. If you bear a cross of slander and derision, condemnation and mocking and maligning your call and my call is to bear it like Christ 
Not just to bear it. Not to steal each other. Elbow to elbow. Thumbing our nose at the world. But to bear it like a sheep before shears. Where Christ can be revealed in that moment. So his call for the Kaplan family would not be to hunker down. Hunker down, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, y'all just grab each other's hands and just bear through this. His call would not have been to retreat. His call would have been to bear this Christ and His message with gentleness and respect and to actually love their enemies. To love those Sadducees that wanted to murder Him. And to answer their questions with gentleness and respect. There certainly is God's protection in following Christ. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. I'm afraid that the Christian faith has been conditioned to the mindset that He helps us right here in the here and now. That if we follow Christ, then we'll experience the American dream. We'll have a good job and a nice home and a nice car and we'll be healthy and happy. But our protection is not about our best life now. And our protection is not about a special plan for our life. Our protection comes from the wrath-absorbing work of Christ on a cross, shedding His blood for you and me and being bathed in that blood. That's where our protection comes from. That's the protection that we enjoy now because we are looking with eternal eyes. God's special plan for your life may be that you sell everything that you own and move to Kazakhstan and worship with Christ out loud. God's special plan for your life may be that you and a couple other Christians go buy a bookstore in Turkey and get your heads cut off. What happened about three months ago to some guys in Turkey. God's special plan for your life might mean disembowelment. God's special plan for your life and your best life now might mean to be delimbed. That sounds pretty aggressive and pretty raw and nearly impossible in the the States. And it may be now. But I tell you something that is a reality here and now. God's plan for your life is malignment. To be slandered. To be derided, chided, and maybe even conspired against. That's not a maybe. I don't know how that reconciles with big smiles and nice suits and your best life now. It doesn't seem to reconcile with my Bible or what the people of God should be prepared for. I, uh, sometimes I feel like I have a nice, tidy closure, and I don't today. Um, kind of hard to go have a cheery lunch together after something like that. Scott's going to lead worship here in a moment. I've asked Scott to share a passage that he shared with me three or four weeks ago that really came to mind, and uh, I think it would be appropriate if he shares it with you and shares how the sweep of this passage unfolds of what's in store for the people of God. Let me pray, and we'll turn it over to Scott. Lord, I ask in these 
next few minutes, I ask that in light of what we've just read, that this people, that every single person in this room will experience slander even this week. Lord, I pray that every person in this room will experience malignment, will experience derision, maybe even conspiracy. Lord, I pray that we can experience those things like Christ experienced them, like a sheep before shearers. Given an account for our faith with gentleness and respect. And Lord, I pray that in that, that Christ will be glorified and revealed in this community, in our little workplaces, in our workspaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. That we'll be like a bunch of little sheep that are bearing the truth, that are enjoying our Christ, that are facing our accusers. They're trusting our Lord. Lord, I pray that your word will design and engineer what our understanding of what it means to follow you. Lord, we count it a privilege to suffer with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.